0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: So often it's something very simple that brings happiness. We often think it has to be big or extravagant, and it can be those simple things, sitting in the garden. Yes. Yeah, Anybody else? No? You mean you didn't do something every day that makes you happy?
2: <laughs> I remembered for about half the week. And uh, the something every day came pretty naturally. Um try to do that anyway, just for sanity's sake. <laughs> and it, And you're right, it was very simple sometimes. It was... Just moments of quiet sometimes in our backyard or taking a walk and getting together with friends. Um, And similar with noticing what made me happy, a lot of times it could just be like a smile at a stranger or um, free time to myself that I... (laughs) actually decided to be quiet and eat instead of turning on the TV or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was very nice when I remembered. I wish I'd remembered the last half of the week. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been helpful.
1: Well, now you're being reminded you can do it. Yes. This coming week. Yeah, good. Anybody else? Yeah, Candice.
2: Thank you, Birgit. Yeah, I, I can echo on the other people's also, their impression. I, for myself, it's it a busy schedule when I s- usually sit in the morning, cup of coffee and looking out the window with a little garden, you know, little sound of water and looking at the mm-hmm. uh, trees and little plants just swaying in the window. It's just In the wind, it's, it was just very pleasant. Very calm effect. Instead of uh, just going around chasing after some pleasure, I found myself quite satisfied with those yeah. moments.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Have to have a cup of coffee in my hand, but <laughs> it was really, really calming yeah. moment. Yes, yes.
1: I have a friend who will be ninety in a couple of weeks. She lives on the third floor of Stevenson House, which is a a. a senior citizen house next to uh, the Unitarian Church in Palo Alto. And there are trees right outside her window. And she calls it her tree house. And so often when I'm talking to her on the phone, she'll be talking about the birds or the leaves. Um, You know, they're changing, they're dropping, they're coming. Um, and, And from her window, if, you know, if you're not right out on the uh, balcony, you can't see all the rest of what's below. It's just this beautiful view of trees and sky. And it's, it's really nice. And she finds a lot of happiness, a lot of pleasure in, uh, in just looking out her window. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to start today with a quote from Matthew Ricard. Matthew is a longtime Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. He's actually a monk, and he's been part of the ongoing dialogue with the Dalai Lama. You know, for several years, the Dalai Lama has been meeting with scientists and psychologists and, and monks, and uh, Matthew has been part of that. And he wrote this book called Happiness, A Guide to Developing Life's Most Important Skill. Interesting, huh? So he begins by saying, happiness does not come automatically. It is not a gift that good fortune bestows upon us and a reversal of fortune takes away. It depends on us alone. One does not become happy overnight, but with patient labor, day after day. Happiness is constructed, and that requires effort and time. In order to become happy, we have to learn how to change ourselves. Isn't that interesting? I think so often we tend to think that happiness... Does just happen. And we tend to think that it's dependent on the circumstances of our lives. You might remember from the documentary I mentioned last week that what was discovered that really only about 10% of our happiness is dependent on the circumstances in which we live. And 40% depends on us. 40% is under our control we have some choice about so it behooves us then to pay attention to what creates or what cultivates happiness and to remember that we are not we're not victims <laughs> we're not victims of our circumstances or we're not um, we're not victims of happiness or not happiness. Although that same documentary did find that they said 50% is dependent on uh, the families in which we grew up, uh, partly, partly our experience in that family, and and partly genetic or biologic. Some families tend towards happiness, and some tend towards suffering or unhappiness. And as we're growing up in that culture, of course we tend to take it on. But when we understand that nearly half is up to us, then we can change that tendency. It's only a tendency. And we can learn to change it. Sylvia Borstein has written a book, Sylvia is a teacher at Spirit Rock, called Happiness is an Inside Job. Again, suggesting that um, that we have a good deal of control over our happiness. So, do all of you or any of you, are you familiar with Rick Hansen's book, Hardwiring Happiness? No? Rick has spoken here, not for a while. He's a longtime practitioner, a psychologist, and has been very interested in um, neuropsychology, and especially in the new findings on neuroplasticity. And so he has written this book, um, talking about how we can literally rewire our brains. You know, when, when I was young and in nursing school it was understood that brain cells don't regenerate and that the brain um, essentially stopped growing or maturing uh, at 18 or 20 something like that. And so there was almost a sort of a fatalistic attitude And now we know very differently. We know that brain cells, not all, but some do regenerate. We have learned that the brain is very malleable. And that just because it has uh, uh, become or uh, something has been ingrained doesn't mean it can't change. And so Rick suggests how we can literally change the grooves in our brain. Yeah.
2: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or some
3: number that's very high. And these are adult people learning how to do it. So they had to take a class that was like a year or two long and then take the test to ride the cab to drive the cab. Mm-hmm. And they studied the people's brains who took the test before and after. And they showed that the part of the brain that can learn more information how it would grown in these adult people who had learned so much of the information mm-hmm. and all the details in order to pass the test. And it showed um, how much that area had grown and the activity in that area, because there had been such an intense amount of memorization in a relatively short period of time. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was, and he's telling it to us as, um, you know, parents of what we can do with our children. But I thought it was really right. interesting, right?
1: Right, that literally we can keep learning mm-hmm. and um, adding to our brain for all of our life. Yes. So Rick begins by talking about how the brain has a negative bias. And he says this is because the early brain, the reptilian brain, um, needed to be aware of danger and any threat. And so the brain automatically looked for threats and for possible danger. Now we've sort of outgrown that. You know, life... Uh, isn't at least physically quite so threatening. And uh, now probably what we need is more like like contentment and happiness and um, much more, we call, positive um, experiences or qualities, I should say. And so He says, really, that that we shouldn't blame ourselves if if we tend to have a negative bias, if we see ourselves as being pretty negative. That comes kind of naturally with the territory. But now we can learn to change that. And the way he suggests that we do it is part of why I suggested that over the week you look for... Uh, happy experiences, is that we tend to sort of overlook, gloss over happy times, contented times, peaceful times. And we really emphasize the unpleasant, the difficult, the suffering times. I see heads nodding. Everybody knows that, right? We do a hundred things well. I remember when my daughter was growing up. Oh, my gosh. I could praise her a hundred times and then have one criticism. And what did she latch on to? That one criticism. All you do is criticize. <laughs> but that's, that comes kind of naturally. But the good news is we can change that. And we change it by... Consciously, um, deliberately being aware of the happy times, the contented times, <coughs> me. The, um, the times that actually come automatically all the time. And Rick says just what so many of you said, that it can be very small things. He, he used the phrase, subtle is significant. I like that. Something so subtle or so small can be very significant. And what he suggests that we do is learn to pay attention, teach ourselves, um, keep remembering, just like mindfulness, to pay attention to those happy times and then sort of underscore it. He says, enrich it and absorb it. Uh, What he means by that is, linger with it for more than a split second. (laughs) He says between five and ten seconds. So you notice that you're having a pleasant experience. Stay with it. Even five more seconds makes a difference. And let yourself really experience it. Let yourself feel it. Don't let yourself just dismiss it or let it go by, but really take it in. And feel it in your body. Experience it in your body. You know, the body... Is grounding. And when we go to the body for our experience, that tends to ground our experience. And by doing this we can literally change our attitude, change our experience of happiness. So people say, well isn't that just the power of positive thinking? Or we're just, it's kind of Pollyannish, we're just creating um, positive circumstances. Well, yes, we might be creating them, (laughs) but what's wrong with that? (laughs) We are purposely acknowledging and cultivating or creating happy times, we're not denying or pushing away, or ignoring unhappy times. We're just making sure that we also acknowledge and experience the happy times. You know, the Buddha suggested that it was very important that we notice when we were happy, when things were going well, when we were being skillful, These kinds of things. He didn't, even though he taught about suffering and the end of suffering, he didn't suggest that all our attention should be on suffering. (laughs) In fact, the opposite. He said that it was very important to be aware when we weren't suffering. It was very important to be aware when we aren't angry, when we aren't fearful, when we aren't... unhappy, or despairing, or whatever. It is just as important, maybe more so, that we pay attention to when we are happy. So, we're not denying anything. We are just, maybe, reinforcing, cementing, (laughs) um, our positive Experience, So he calls it taking in the good. And let's just for a moment do that, practice that. So if you want, you can close your eyes or just sit quietly. And you can be aware of a positive experience right now. Maybe a feeling that you have, or the temperature in the room. Anything that you're experiencing right now. Or, if you're not aware of something right now, then bring to mind a moment very recently when there was a happy experience, when you were feeling happy or contented or peaceful. Now let yourself just be with that experience, not embellishing it, Not doing anything with it, except being aware of it, noticing it, and experiencing it. And then be aware of a body correlate, that is, where are you experiencing that in your body? Or can you feel it? Can you experience it in your body? Okay, and then when you fully experienced it, you can open your eyes. And how was that? Anybody care to comment? Did everybody come up with a positive, a happy or a pleasant experience? (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm, I guess I was a little slow in the uptake today But I f- remembered that all week My wife and I have been watching two hummingbird chicks in
3: our atrium uh. Grow and develop And I th- we think they're about to burst from the nest shortly But it was, it's
1: been very wonderful to watch this experience and if I analyze it I have no idea why it seems to bring about happiness but it does yes yes so you really didn't forget <laughs> so I thought of, so I thought about this morning uh, looking at them this morning yeah. before I came here yes lovely. and and now as we did this uh, you could bring it to mind you could really feel it experience it. I could. Mm -hmm. Great. Perhaps in a way that you might not have? Oh, sure.
3: Yes, yes. The whole little exercise made me much more aware Aware. of how I was feeling when I watched them.
1: Yes, yes. Good.
0: We have two corgis that love to chase after each other in the backyard and that's what I, whenever I think of joy I think of that because it is so cute it just, it just you just can't help but get happy watching them Um, there's actually a term that um, corgi lovers use, They, they frap frap, they frap and then they just start running around you know, frapping just happily and dancing and springing and you know and you just can't help but be happy whenever you see
1: them frapping. <laughs> that's a great word. because <laughs> they act like they So that's just a momentary experience, but but that gives you the um, the experience of what you can do to to anchor we say, a pleasant or a happy experience. Just bringing it to mind, or if you're experiencing it, really taking it in as you are experiencing it. And over time, not, you know, immediately, as Matthew says, it takes time. (laughs) It's not going to happen overnight, but with time you can literally change the brain. You can literally rewire or change the grooves that you have worn in the brain. And it's very pleasant to do, isn't it? So I'm hearing myself using pleasure or pleasant and happy interchangeably. We do that a lot. However, it's really important that we are aware That true happiness, deep happiness, the happiness that we're talking about in Buddhist practice, is not just pleasure. Pleasure is considered to come from the six senses. And the mind, you know, is the sixth sense. But pleasure is fleeting. Pleasure is temporary. It does not last. And the happiness that comes from within, the happiness that we want to cultivate, is that deeper happiness that is not temporary. That is there underlying all the time. And Though we may forget or we may be involved in suffering or something unhappy, unpleasant, uh, one author said it's like our breath, it's always there, and we can, in a moment, return to that. Even in the midst of great difficulty, we can remember, just like we remember to go to the breath, we remember that. Deeper happiness. The happiness of being, we could say. So, what is the role of suffering in cultivating happiness? There is suffering in the world, right? We get born in these bodies, there will be suffering. The Buddha did not suggest that that we would get away from all pain, but the suffering that is human-created is what we can become free of. Until we're completely free of suffering, we can learn to use our suffering. We can learn from it. Instead of wallowing in it, or pushing it away, or denying it, we can actually turn and face it, even embrace it, and learn learn from it, grow from it. It actually can help us to develop inner strength. Suffering points us to our clinging. Where are we clinging? I've heard a number of people say that Ajahn Chah, you know, the um, well-revered teacher in in, uh, Thailand, would say to his monks, are you suffering? Ah, clinging. So when we're suffering, there's some clinging going on. And we can use that experience of suffering as an opportunity to look for where are we clinging. And as Joseph Goldstein says, sometimes it's very, very subtle. And it can take um, some time to discover. But if we're mindful, if we pay attention, we can ultimately find Ah, what are we hanging on to? Maybe a view, maybe a belief, maybe some self-identity, some sense of ourselves. We can actually also, through the practice of Tonglen, do you all know, uh, anybody know of Tonglen? It's a Tibetan practice where we literally breathe in suffering the suffering of someone in particular, or the suffering of humanity, and breathe out peace, or calm, or happiness. So, let's do that just for a moment. training in the exchange of happiness and suffering. So again, you can close your eyes or not, as you wish. Begin by generating a powerful feeling of warmth, loving kindness, and compassion for all beings. Then imagine those who are enduring suffering similar to or worse than your own. As you breathe out, visualize that you are sending them all your happiness, vitality, good fortune, health, and so on on your breath in the form of cool, white, luminous nectar. Picture them fully absorbing the nectar, which soothes their pain and fulfills their aspiration. If their life is in danger of being cut short, imagine that it has been prolonged. If they are sick, imagine that they are healed. If they are poor and helpless, imagine that they have obtained what they need if they are unhappy, that they have become full of joy. When you inhale, visualize your heart as a bright luminous sphere. Imagine that you are taking upon yourself in the form of a gray cloud the disease, confusion, mental toxins of these people, which disappears into the white light of your heart without leaving any trace. This will transform both your own suffering and that of others. There is no sense that you are being burdened by them. When you are taking upon yourself and dissolving their suffering, feel a great happiness without attachment or clinging. So breathing in the suffering of others, whatever it is, Imagining it dissolving in the white, luminous nectar of your heart. And breathing out tranquility and happiness. And now, again, you can open your eyes. Mm
2: -hmm. This may sound silly, but are there people who are like happiness robbers?
1: Happiness Um, robbers?
2: um, Perhaps I'm doing something that brings me happiness and then I hear critical comments. And somehow it changes the joy or happiness Mm -hmm. in the process. And it happens repeatedly. How might I change how I hear it that I don't lose that innate creation?
1: Yes. Good practice. (laughs) Or good question, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, yes... Perhaps there are people that may have difficulty out of their own circumstances or their own um, personality with someone else being happy. And a comment, a critical comment, uh, just at the right time can (laughs) be a real zinger, can't it? It can then for you be an opportunity to practice a couple of things. One, remembering that that came from them. And it really says more about them than you. It does not have to change your happiness. Even, even if it stings in the moment, you can be aware of that and say to yourself, I won't take this on. This is, this is them, not me. This does not have to destroy my happiness. And again, it may take practice, it may take time. You know, over and over you may need to remind yourself because you're used to being stung by what they say. And then at the same time, I think you could cultivate compassion for that person. Compassion for someone who might be so uncomfortable with happiness Probably themselves. (laughs) If they don't, if it's hard to see it in you, then it must be very hard for them to experience. And just, you know, you can do loving kindness um, or just develop compassion for them who have such a difficult time with it. Does that help? Um, And that brings me to something that I did want to say, which is, what, what can be barriers or resistances to happiness? And one can be a sense of not deserving. Sometimes we may all, at times, have a sense of not deserving to be happy for any number of reasons. Um... Some of you that are close to my age may remember (laughs) it was frequently said when we were growing up to be careful about being too happy because tomorrow you'd be crying. (laughs) Boy, that put a damper on how much happiness and excitement we had as kids. You know, we'd get too exuberant. Well, that can lead to a sense of happiness not being okay or not deserving happiness. However, another author says that happiness is our birthright. And as the Dalai Lama says, we all want to be happy. Happiness is the purpose of life, he says. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say
3: when I was little, my mom used to say, all you want to do is have fun. <laughs> <laughs> when I was little my mom would say all you want to do is have fun like to all of us and then now as an adult I'm like well yeah <laughs> so I think I have that guilt thing and about you know that life's supposed to be hard and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know we're not supposed to be joyful
1: and, and we want to be clear life can be hard life is hard much of the time it is hard however that doesn't mean we have to be unhappy. We can learn, we can cultivate happiness in the face of difficulties. There's, there was a quote um, I loved. In the midst of winter, I discovered there is within me an invincible summer. <laughs> Isn't that nice? In the heart of difficulty... We can find happiness when we penetrate suffering. When we really see it clearly and allow it, we find happiness within that suffering. Seems paradoxical, but it's true. And people that have done it have found that. And, as we know, of course, there can be suffering in the midst of great pleasure. So, a few more things I want to mention in terms of cultivating happiness.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: In, in the midst of winter, I discovered within myself an invincible summer. So ethics is another big piece of cultivating happiness. Living an ethical, a virtuous life. We may not necessarily think of ethics and happiness, but the Buddha very much taught that living an ethical life, a virtuous life, does lead to happiness. The bliss of blamelessness that if we are not engaged in um, breaking the precepts, so to speak, if we are not engaged in unethical behavior, then when we sit down to meditate, we're just in our everyday lives, we don't have to experience the regret and the remorse that we would if we were not being ethical. You know, when we go on retreat, we always start a retreat with taking the precepts. So that we know that during that period of time, we're all living and practicing with the same understandings, the same um, rules of conduct. And that allows us to relax. We don't have to be concerned about somebody uh, taking something or harming us or... Um, any of of the precepts. So it's important that we remember that virtue, morality, does really underpin happiness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is huge. Learning to forgive frees us. And it takes courage. (laughs) It's not necessarily easy to forgive. But when we remember that holding on to resentment is really hurting us, not the other person. The other person has probably forgotten and is on their happy way. (laughs) But it's we who are suffering from holding on to the resentment. Then we see that letting go of that resentment can be like lifting a weight, lifting a burden, and allowing, allowing the free flow of happiness. Now, it's important that we say, when we talk about forgiveness, that that doesn't necessarily mean forgetting. Sometimes, if it's small enough, we might forget. It's not a big deal. But sometimes when there has been real harm, then it's important that we don't forget, because we don't want to put ourselves in harm's way again. And it is possible to forgive whatever was done, and yet not forget it. Remember, so that we don't allow that to happen again. Sometimes when there's been abuse, um it might be very important that we never see that person again. And yet we can forgive what they have done out of their own ignorance or their own fear or hurt or whatever. Simplicity. Simplicity one one person suggested that happiness was simplicity. <laughs> Um, Simplicity really can bring happiness. I have found that. Over my years of practice, I have let go of so much. Both tangible, you know, physical things, and ideas, concepts, beliefs, views, things that I used to hold so tightly, I can much more easily now let go. Sometimes not totally let go, but hold much more lightly. And it's a relief. You know, it's hard to hold on to anything. Um, I'm quite open with my house. You know, I go away and leave the door unlocked and sliding door open. And people will often say, Brigette, aren't you going to close that? No. And for me, it's like there's nothing in my house that anybody wants. (laughs) Seriously. And I'm happier that way. I'm much happier being able to live free and open and not having to guard everything. You know? Um, Simplicity, again, of thinking. uh, Simplicity of the mind. Not... Not, ha- not getting f- caught up in a tangle of views, in a thicket of views, but holding things lightly. I sometimes see how, how in our culture, how we complicate things, at least from my perspective, <laughs> things could be so much simpler and yet they get so complicated. And I try to live much more simply, um, It's a much happier life for me." All of these things, there's so much more we could say, but the time is flying by. I do want to add, though, one more thing that might surprise you, but I think is important, and that's beauty. The value of beauty in our lives. And again, doesn't have to be extravagant. Doesn't have to be anything big. Very simple thing. The hummingbirds. Um, there are hummingbirds around where I live also. And I've noticed they're so social. It's really interesting. They come right up close. Yeah. Um, and they're beautiful. They're incredibly beautiful. There's, there's a patch in the grass by the swimming pool that has um, little white daisy flowers. Just this little patch and every time I walk by there, I notice that and it makes me smile. It's very beautiful. It's so simple, but it's so lovely, all this green and then this little patch of white flowers or flowers growing out of a crack, right? Um, beauty, you know, does not have a definition. Beauty can be whatever is beautiful for us. Music, for me, is part of beauty. And we might have very different tastes in music, but I think music is, is a universal Language and is understood um, on a nonverbal way by everyone. Beauty brings calm and peace and happiness. The beauty of the ballet, the beauty of whatever. Flowers. I always have several bouquets of flowers in my house, and they bring happiness. Just seeing them, just having them in my house, brings happiness. Gratitude. Gratitude and generosity. I think those two go very much together. Gratitude leads to generosity and generosity leads to gratitude. And both of them lead to happiness. James Barras says happiness, a happy heart, is a byproduct of a generous and grateful heart. And I don't know if you're all familiar with James' book Awakening Joy. Uh, James is uh, one of the founding Spirit Rock teachers, he teaches in Berkeley, and every year he does this course, Awakening Joy, based, of course, on Buddhist understanding, Buddhist teachings. You can do it online, or you can go to Berkeley, where he actually has the physical sessions, and... He talks a lot about the practice of gratitude and ultimately just gratitude, not for something, but just an open heart, a grateful heart. It's said that Buddhist monks begin each day with a chant of gratitude. American Indian elders begin each of their ceremonies with prayers of gratitude. And Tibetan monks and nuns offer prayers for the suffering that has come their way. Imagine that. Prayers of gratitude for the suffering they have been given. They see it as a gift because they use it. Reminds me of Ramdas, who, you know, had a, uh, an, a massive stroke, what, a dozen years ago. And although it was extremely painful at first, he has come now to see it as the grace of the guru, a gift from his guru. So gratitude for everything that is in our lives. We can start with gratitude for certain things, and a gratitude practice is a wonderful practice to develop. I was doing it for a time, and just before I went to bed, I would just sit and, either mentally or writing it down, make a list of what I was grateful for that day. And I found that I would start with um, sort of superficial things. And then just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And it was amazing all the things that would come to mind that I was grateful for. Things that, that I might not otherwise have thought to feel gratitude for. So... Um, it is just eleven. Does anybody have anything you'd like to offer before we stop? Yeah. I was um,
0: thinking that. Is that okay? I think. I was thinking that. I think sometimes um, I'm not feeling happy because um, the lack of true understanding of no fixed self. And I think it's because maybe I was not happy in the past, and I kind of assume that I'm not going to be happy forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it it, it really and really need to develop true understanding of the not fixed self notion, and that's when I can start um, with your advice of like try to savor the happiness moment, and that's gonna help me realize it is possible, and it just I just need to cultivate the conditions. <laughs> Yeah. whether it's external condition or inner condition, and that's something that's possible.
1: Yes. And, and I would just add to that, don't wait <laughs> until you let go of the idea of a fixed, solid self. <laughs> Start practicing cultivating happiness right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, you'll enhance letting go of that view.
0: Yeah. yeah. And may I ask... For you, like, during your practice, have you seen, observed yourself happier and happier over time?
1: Yes. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not, um, you know, (laughs) this kind of happiness. It's not, well, well. Just, it's more that, that deeper acceptance, I think, contentment that's not uh, dependent on Circumstances.
0: Um, I have another question. Um, so we talked about happiness and suffering. Um, what about the time when you are neither happy nor suffering, like those gray area and neutral time? How do you make use of those times when you are not feeling happy or
1: not happy? Well, that can be a time to tap into or just recognize that basic happiness that is always there. Or maybe acceptance, or contentment, are are more useful words. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, anything huge. Uh, to be happy, um, those quiet times when things are kind of neutral. Underneath that can be a, a deep contentment, a deep um, peacefulness. That is true happiness. Yeah.
0: Thank you.
1: There's there's also the happiness of being, or the contentment of being, the peace of just being, not having to be someone or something or do something, um, just being. And that's, that can be a way of letting go of that identity, that self-identity, but just being. So I'll end with um, this poem, Heart Song. This is from a young boy named Matty Stepanik, Some of you may have heard of. Matty uh, died several years ago at age 13. He had a very unusual um, muscular dystrophy. And he was an old soul, clearly. (laughs) He wrote poetry from the time he was three, I think. And one of his most meaningful poems is called Heart Song. I have a song deep in my heart, and only I can hear it. If I close my eyes and sit very still, it is so easy to listen to my song. When my eyes are open and I'm so busy and moving and busy, if I take time and listen very hard, I can still hear my heart song. It makes me feel happy, happier than ever, happier than everywhere and everything and everyone in the whole wide world. Happy like thinking about going to heaven when I die. My heart song sounds like this I love you, I love you, how happy you can be, how happy you can make the whole world be. And sometimes it's other tunes and words too, but it always sings the same special feeling to me. It makes me think of Jamie and Katie and Stevie, his siblings who had already died. And other wonderful things. This is my special song. But do you know what? All people have a special song inside their hearts. Everyone in the whole wide world has a special heart song. If you believe in magical, musical hearts, and if you believe you can be happy, then you too will hear your song. So I wish you all happiness. And I just remembered um, somebody asked for a copy of of uh, yeah.